Overcoming adversity, doing it at all costs, making wins are all lost. Yeah, the world is all lost, all lost. Yeah, ain't no turning back. We headed straight for the stars. Yeah, oh yeah, we overcoming adversity, doing it at all costs, making wins are all lost. Yeah, the world is all lost, all lost. Yeah, ain't no turning back. We headed straight for the stars. Yeah, oh yeah. Welcome to the Overcoming Adversity Podcast, where it's all about transformational growth and a resilient mindset. Before we get started, make sure you like and subscribe to the channel. I'm your host, Michael Allison. Today we have a guest of mine that I've been waiting to have on this show. We have today friend, Mr. Bill Robertson, who is a screenwriter, a playwriter, and also an author. He's been sober clean for over 26 years. He started drinking back when he was 12 years old. This guy has his own fair share of adversities, but has overcame all of the adversities that he's faced. I want to welcome to the show my good friend, Mr. Bill Robertson. Thank you, sir, for being here, sir. Hey, Mike. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for being here with me, man. Um, I was hoping behind stage, and now we're uh, live. It's uh, It's been very impressive just to understand some of the things that you've been through in your life. And hearing that story, you know, a lot of them make it to where you're at now to even tell the story that you've been through, man. You know, it's an uphill battle for a lot of people. Some things that some people may consider um, addictions or some of these things that have people either in homes or just in some of the some messed up places. So I commend you for overcoming the things that you've been through. But if you can, man, can you tell us about your story and how you got to the level of success where you're at now today? Sure. Uh, yeah. uh, thank you so much. And, you know, it's funny. The first word that popped into my head was miracle. I think, uh, you know, that word can be used for many of us, that the fact that we're still here. I mean, your story as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I started drinking. I had my first drink when I was eight and uh, and I liked the taste immediately. And then I started heavy drinking at 12. And it was about a lot of it was about things that were happening around me. You know, my dad had a heart attack. Um, my mom got hepatitis within like three or four months um, from when my dad got back and I watched her eyes roll up in the back of her head and she had a fever of like 105 and, you know, she stiffened up like a board and hit the ground and we thought we had lost her and I was 12, you know, and, um, and then I had fallen on the ice and hit my head and I had a really bad concussion and I went blind and, um, it was 1972. The world was kind of, you know, topsy-turvy. And the neighborhood I grew up in, in uh, Attleboro, Massachusetts at the time, um, you know, we all started, um, it, it seemed like everybody was dealing with a certain level of anxiety. And then one of my friend's mothers committed suicide. Mm. Um, she was a heavy drinker. Um, and two weeks after she died, the woman across the street moved in with her kids into the house with my friend and his father because they'd been having an affair. Wow. So it was it was brutal. So my buddy started dealing drugs right away. And um, in one weekend, there were like 15 of us, um, like eight on a Saturday and seven on a Sunday, who all started smoking pot for the first time. I still remember it was a Panama red and two Colombian golds for a buck. It was a real deal back then. But anyway, um, and we all started drinking at the same time. Like we'd bring out bottles from our parents. We had a rule in the neighborhood. It was so stupid. You have to finish the bottle of whatever you bring out. 
You ever drink a whole bottle of Seagram Seven in one night? Not a fun experience, let me tell you. Nah, but you, you Boston guys are some tough guys, man. I, it was, I, I was in some Boston guys, man. The boys, those boys can drink. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, they call us mass holes. That's for a reason. You know, it's a lovely, lovely uh, nickname. But no, we drank, and it's it's funny in Boston, and it's kind of like Los Angeles. I used to say half of us are in program, and the other half should be. So it's, it's that kind of thing. But yeah, so we drank a lot and we partied and we got in a lot of trouble. Um, uh, one of them is no longer with, actually two of them are no longer with us. Um, um, one, and, and they died due to their drinking and drugging. Um, two went to prison. Um, it, 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 it was rough. So when I look back at it now, you know, I went to my first 12 step meeting um, when I was 17 in 1977. And then in 1987, I was at a barbecue with a bunch of friends and, um, and this guy made chicken salad with his hands and he had hepatitis. Once again, hepatitis, 10 of us caught hepatitis. And the doctor said to me in 87, cause I continued to drink after 77. I only went to one meeting. Um, the doctor said, if you ever drink again, you'll die. This was 1987. And I was petrified of alcohol. I smoked a, a shitload of pot. Um, and then in, um, I went about a year and a half without a drink. And I was out with a friend at a club. And he said, you know, hey, what do you want to drink? I said, I'll have a Perrier with a lime. Because that's what you drank when you were sober in, in 1987, you know. And he tapped me on the shoulder and handed me a Heineken. And I went out for another 10 years. And I became a crack addict. Um, I had a big ass job in Boston, um, Lincoln town cars picking me up. I didn't get high or drunk during work. That was one thing I made sure I had really bad hangovers at work, but I didn't drink during work or drug. And I hit the crack pipe for about six months at the end. And that's what dropped me. And thank God it did. Cause I was also a blackout drinker. You know, you'd wake up in the morning and the first thing is I'd look out my window to see if my car was there. And one time it wasn't, so I'd left it unlocked. And when you live in Boston, because I was living in Dorchester at the time, somebody stole the car, you know. I got carjacked. I witnessed a murder. I saw a 16-year-old boy shot in the head and killed. Um, I, you know, I got mugged. Uh, it, it, it was just constantly bad karma. I had my apartment ransacked. Um, I was living a double life and the hole inside of me was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I couldn't fill it with alcohol and drugs anymore. So on April 18th, 1997, I was struck sober. And um, I, I haven't had a drink or a drug since. And it, it's not easy, but I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired and really came close so many times. I mean, I'd be in a crack house talking to people and someone would ask me for somebody. I remember this one dealer said to me, do you have any clonopin? I did. I had clonopin. So I traded him clonopin for crack. And then he wrote my name and number on a crack house wall. And I was working in corporate America. Right. So <laughs> when I left there, I'm like, damn, my name is on a crack house wall. You're not good. They ended up condemning the building, but you know, these stories are just so stupid when you really hear them. And I have a million of them, which will be in my second book. But uh, it's just ridiculous at times. And 
and you know things you know it, seriously it's just one after another we call them jackpots that's what they're called in boston you know they had another jackpot um so i met this guy who was from la but was going to berkeley school of music and he became my sponsor early on and got me into this you know the 12 steps and and did that and you know life life continues to happen whether you're sober or not but now i have a tool chest with different solutions in it that help me deal with the adversity of life that happens you know um a lot of stuff's gone down since i got sober um i had a better understanding of why i was here and my connection with god became much stronger i'm not a bible guy um, but I know that there's something greater than myself, whether you call it source, spirit, energy of the universe, mother nature, God, whatever works for you, you know, is how I was able to stay sober one day at a time. And the other thing I, I really need to, I want to impress this on anyone listening is I'm not in a results business. I'm in the business of taking action. That's all I can really rely on. I can take action. But if I get stuck in the results, what I want as a result might not be as great as what the universe wants for me. And I know that might sound crazy to some people, but I've reached certain goals. And then I'm like, now what? That was kind of a waste. Why did I, why did I want that? Because my ego told me I wanted it because I was comparing myself to someone else. I had to be a millionaire by the time I was 30. Well, that didn't happen, you know. But if I had, I'd be dead by now. Are you kidding me? I never would have gotten sober <laughs> at the age of 36. I would totally, I would have already thrown dirt on me. And um, so it's that type of thing that, you know, getting sober... It's, a, you know, hey, some people can drink all the power to them. And some people are not alcoholics. They're just heavy drinkers and they just need to stop. But mine also, because of the fall on the ice um, and, and my three of my uncles died of alcoholism. My grandfather was all related to their drinking and smoking a ton of cigarettes because they were from Glasgow, Scotland. So they, they smoked a, a boatload. Um it, I ended up getting OCD and OCD, if, if you talk to people that are in recovery, a lot of them deal with some type of a compulsion because that's what alcoholism and addiction is. It's a compulsion to not want to feel anything. Didn't want to feel. And if I was having a great time, I wanted to feel more. It's kind mm -hmm. of a paradigm. You know, you know, so, so. That's that's kind of the foundation of it. Um, and when I got sober, I was all, not only in corporate America, but I was also running a sketch comedy show out of New York and Boston called Heavily Medicated Fairy Tales. It was like Monty Python, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I could only I, I couldn't focus long enough to write a script or a book. I could only write like three or four minute sketches and then my attention would go away, you know? So I directed and produced it. We did really well. We did a lot of colleges and corporate gigs also. We got close. ABC came to see us for a pilot in New York at the duplex in the village. 
and uh, we didn't get it, but you know, we were getting people in there to see it. And the first thing I did after I got sober, um, I quit my job in corporate America. A friend of mine was um, had a startup in the same industry, and I went to work for him and made nowhere near what I was making in corporate America, but it was so I could focus on my sobriety. I'd saved a ton of money. And then um, I wrote a script, I wrote my first script in my first year of sobriety. And it was about a drug addict, of course. And I remember writing it with my writing partner who also had a, had overcome a drug problem. And the two of us were just sweating profusely during one scene. It was so intense. I've optioned that I've optioned that script four times, but I haven't made it yet. It hasn't been made yet. Maybe someday I will. It's called Nightclub. But anyway. Um and then um at four years sober, I moved to Los Angeles. Um I had picked up a manager and um I learned how to work still in corporate America, but I've been working from home since nineteen ninety-seven as a corporate recruiter. And I'd get contracted out to different companies or I worked internally for companies and I could always write on the side. And it used to be my A job was writing. My B job was recruiting. So my B job was supporting my A job until my A job supported me. Right, right. So right. I had to honor both because it's not easy. You know, this isn't 1964 where I could live in my car and write a screenplay and you know and be fine so it you know it's expensive to be a human being right now on the planet um especially in this country um so that's kind of you know what led me to that and then i ended up writing a, a musical comedy out here a bluegrass musical comedy i knew nothing about bluegrass and uh, my writing partner and a composer friend of his who is a bluegrass performer straight out of Mississippi with a banjo on his back and the beer belly and the long beard. And he was like, hey, Bill, we're doing a remake of Hee Haw. Do you want to help me? I'm like, hell no. <laughs> Hee Haw? What are you kidding me? And he just kept, and I was adapting a book for this other producer at the time. And um, he just kept haunting me with it. And I was like, right, send me some of the music. Let me hear what this is. It was totally different than what I thought. And the music was incredible. Um, so I went in and helped them write the script. And it was called Paradise, a bluegrass mm -hmm. musical. And it ran in L.A. for quite a long time. It had two runs in L.A. And then a regional theater, uh, the Austin Playhouse, picked it up. And then over COVID, um, there was a producer who ran Robert Duvall's company for like 11 years saw it and we we were we were already kind of you know communicating about different projects and he was like bill what about turning it into an independent film and this is in the middle of covid and i'm like what so i i kind of took my skill set and i raised the capital um for it and um we shot it during covid we brought in um um a woman, Mary Sarah, who was a finalist on The Voice, and we brought in some other great people, and um, we shot it. Um, the whole thing was done in what was it? Um, three weeks. We shot, we we laid down the music um, and rehearsed for two weeks, and then we shot the film in six days on a soundstage. It's very different. Oh wow. Yeah, and then Artist View Entertainment is our um, our sales agent and distributor, 
And um, so hopefully in 2024, or if not sooner, it will be sold. Um, he did take it to Cannes and uh, just got back recently. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? You know, everything's a crapshoot. And um, it's like the old writer William Goldman, who wrote The Sting and a bunch of other films, said, no one in Hollywood knows anything. I, so, I, you kind of a, huh? I was going to say, I uh, I have a lot to unpack here, man. Um, you gave a good bit of uh, about your background, and your story is so phenomenal, man. Um, you you share more with me than that I I even knew. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> I'm gonna okay, name so <laughs> so let's hop into some questions here. So, being that you're someone that's completely sober now, yeah. You've been through the twelve-step process, and you don't—you no longer have those urges or anything like that. What is it that you find to be beneficial or grateful for now, looking back at the person back then that been through a whole bunch of things? Well, sure. First off, I still have the urge. I still get a craving. Um, it has not gone away. I hear people say, oh, I have no desire to. I'm like, you're lying. Come on. You know, I mean, when times get tough, the first thing I think about is I'd love to smoke a joint. Mm -hmm. And I just realized I tried that. It just doesn't work for me. It'll lead me right back to the booze and then to the harder drugs. I mean, I was doing a little heroin at the end, too. So, I, you know, it, I just can't do it. So the biggest thing from then to now, and I really truly believe this, everything that I've had to overcome, everything that I've had to face has helped me get closer to God. And, and I don't want to make this a pulpit type thing. And like I said, I'm not a Bible guy. I'm not a religious guy. I'm a spiritual guy. It helped me to better. I mean, I, I really do depend on this energy or power that I can't see. And I don't know if it's just my inner being um, getting away from ego. You know, ego to me stands for ease God out. Um, am I making decisions out of fear or out of love? You know, um, a lot of fear. I still have a lot of fear. And the thing I have to remember, and this is where I'm different than I was, because I was always carrying a bag of pot on me, no matter where I was. I always made sure I went to the liquor store and had plenty of booze in my refrigerator, even if I was going out. So I knew I had booze when I came home. Mm -hmm. um, I don't do that anymore. I'm not chasing anymore. You know, I'm not caught in the disease of more, which is what happens with it. But the biggest lesson I've learned is when I'm dealing with fear, if I can remember, and it's a practice, if I walk through that fear, there's more self-love on the other side. So it's realizing that walking through fear feeds me. So it's, I, I had one friend who said, I love having a lot of fear in my life. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, because I know that on the other side of it, I'm going to get more power, more empowerment right. as a human being, as a... a as a authentic human being. There's so much uh, lessons that you have to share, man. I, uh, first off, man, congratulations, man. I, I know that it's a struggle. I mean, 
what what you see on TV, uh, what you see every Friday night, every, every Super Bowl, every NBA championship, you name it. Um, that's what's being pumped and promoted, man. So I salute you, man, for just um, just having that uh, discipline in regards to like fighting that urge. But you know what? Part of it is I never forget what my last night was like. It was not mm. cool. It was not good. It, as we call it, incomprehensible demoralization. Mm. I, I'd sleep with anybody back then. You know, it was just like, <laughs> it's just what it was. <laughs> you wake up in the morning and it's like the first words out of my mouth would be, you have to catch a cab. No, um, you know, but it was it was just not good. And, uh, and, it, and here's the saddest part. The last drink I had, this is so bad. I was managing a singing group at the time, believe it or not. Um, they were uh, three people. They played guitar. They sang all originals and stuff. Uh, they were called Comfortable Shoes. And what the, I don't know what the fuck I was doing. But anyway, I hope I can swear on this. I just did. Sorry about that. Um, but anyway, they, uh, it was White Zinfandel. I had seven white Zinfandels was the last alcohol I had. I was a beer drinker. I was a shot drinker. For some reason, I drank white Zinfandel that night. I don't even like white Zinfandel, but I drank seven of them with no food. So it wasn't pretty at the end. But, that was a um, sign to tell you that was it, man. Oh, so sad. I wish I could have had a Budweiser in a can, you know, or something. But anyway. Next. So you had mentioned that in, um, three concussions. Yeah. Yeah. How did you manage deal with concussions and migraine and headaches? Um, especially while in an uh, intoxicated space. No, that's really, it's really, you know, it's funny. I haven't had to answer these questions yet. I've done a bunch of podcasts. And if I can help on this, this is, this is really important because I know a lot of people deal with migraine headaches and I have some solutions and actual cures, believe it or not. Um, the first concussion was I was chasing a friend of mine um, and I played a ton of ice hockey growing up. So I'm a very good skater, but I was chasing him wearing my sneakers on a pond and my feet, he was skating and my feet went up in the air. My head came down and crashed, pretty much cracked open on the ice. Wow. And um, my parents were worried that, that you know, it wasn't, wasn't going to be good. And um, I finally get over that and I was sitting in class. I was in like the seventh grade and they thought I was having a stroke. I lost the left side of my face, my left hand, my left foot, all numb. The headache starts on the right. And after multiple MRIs and everything else, they determined that I had migraine headaches. And I had to shift diet like chocolate is the number one um, th that you have to get rid of out of your life because it can trigger migraines. Um, high sodium foods as well. Um, I don't eat pork at all. Very high sodium and stuff and bacon. So I eat turkey bacon. The second concussion was football. Um, the third was a car accident. And I've actually had four. And the fourth was another car accident. When I was sober, I got hit head on here in L.A. in 2014. And um, so the migraine headaches, the migraines took different forms over the years and they would be triggered by different things. Weather can trigger them. Um, stress, um, you know, alcohol. Um, so all these things. So when I moved to L.A. and I would have like 
near the end of my time in Boston, I'd have like one a year and it would kind of level me, you know, I can't take meds. I'm just not a med guy anymore. Um, That's a whole other story. But um, so I moved to LA and immediately I was having, I was having cluster migraines. I had in the period of three months, I had like 20 migraines and they were coming at me fast and furious. And what I discovered was the climate change. And I moved here two weeks before 9-11 on one of those flights. So I was a little stressed, (laughs) you know, to say the least. Absolutely. I'll tell you, though, here's the cure. And this is what helped me quit smoking cigarettes because I was smoking a pack and a half a day before I did what I'm going to mention. And it was acupuncture. Mm. In Boston, I went and got acupuncture to quit smoking. I tried everything. Um, And uh, this woman said, Bill, keep smoking. It's either going to work or it's not. And by like the sixth session, we'll know. By the third session of acupuncture, it took away the craving of wanting to have a cigarette. And it's been over 20 years since I've had one from acupuncture. So when I moved here to LA, I went to a place called Emperor's College, which is an acupuncture school. And there's uh, another one near me as well. And they said, oh, okay, well, we'll help you. Um, you know, you, we can help you. They'll be less severe and eventually you won't have them at all. And I'm like, what? Why isn't anyone, what? And they, and they were like, Bill, come on. Western medicine's only been around for about 200 years. We've been doing this for 4,000 years. And I went, oh, okay. So we started doing that and they put me on some herbs called Jai Wei. And if I got a migraine, I just kind of doubled the Jai Wei, no side effects from the herbs at all. And I could get rid of the migraine within an hour and go to the movies. Mm. And I lose my vision when I get a migraine. I get what are called, um, um, what are they called? They're, they're, they're like lightning bolts and different things. And it's like my whole aura that happens. Knock on wood, I haven't had one in close to a year now. But the and when I get them now, I know why. It's that I've eaten the wrong things and I'm stressed out. And I haven't been meditating. So the migraine solutions for anyone who's suffering with them right now, first off, look at your diet. Get rid of high sodium foods. Get rid- if, if you're going to do chocolate, do real natural organic chocolate um, and get rid of coffee. The heavy caffeine for a long time I couldn't do. But you have to figure out what works for you. And then think about acupuncture and herbs because they really have helped me uh, a great deal be able to kind of keep them away. I love acupuncture, man. I, uh, I did acupuncture um, by a good friend of mine, Dr. Warren in Fort Lauderdale. I was dealing with um, some um, aches and some pains in my joints. And um, I 100% swear by it. Um, I, I was scared by the needles. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> But after I did it, um, the, 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 the service was um, phenomenal. It um, helped me relieve a whole bunch of uh, pain. So I definitely um, concur with you, man. You'll get a kick out of this. The woman in Boston who did it, she her specialty was working on dogs. So I'd be sitting in the waiting room, like next to a collie and a Great Dane. And she'd be like, next, you know, <laughs> and uh, and she'd light them on fire too. the the needles. She'd yeah, light yeah, them yeah, on yeah. Fire. 
oh my god and she had her own apothecary in the back and she she was like a witch of some sort she was back there, <laughs> and shit up. but it worked it worked yeah it was man. really cool so let's uh transition a little bit here I introduced you i said that you're a you're a screenwriter and a playwriter and then you jumped into some of the, the the plays that you've done. But I want to know, how did you even get into the, what motivated you to start this? Was there a movie that you saw as a kid? Was there something that your family did as a kid growing up? But what, what got you into the industry that, that created that love just to be um, in, the, in the film industry? I wrote my first play in the third grade, okay? Um, I've always been wanting to do that. And when I got through high school and I, I performed a little and then I got into college and and when I graduated and went into Boston, I thought, OK, what can I do to get me involved in in theater? Because theater led me to film mm -hmm. and it was um, I became the bartender for an outdoor theater called the Public Theater on the Charles River in Boston. And I figured if I'm their bartender, I'm going to meet everybody. And my goal is I'm going to be the assistant director next year. And I managed that to happen because the director at the time drank a lot. So I spent a lot of time with him, pouring him drinks. And then I was like, hey, you need an assistant director? Yeah. <laughs> So that worked out. And then I, I hooked up with these other people, did this horrible vaudeville show. I don't even know what the hell we were thinking. And then I wrote the sketch comedy. And then I started doing short films. We wrote some really bizarre, off-the-wall short films. One of them was called Cakehead, about a man who was born with a head of cake. And, and literally, I shot a Cakehead series in Boston. I had to hire a baker who could make this huge cake for this guy's head. And it got into some film festivals because it was so absurd, you know? <laughs> and then, So we did a series of these. And uh, it was another one called Spaceless, you know, which was similar to what, funny, we did this long before James Corden did it on his talk show. But it was um, people that couldn't find rehearsal space, so they would perform... In like the middle of the street, you know, during stoplight Shakespeare is what we called it. And it was Ibsen intercom and all those other things. So what happened with that is I went down that route and then um, I started meeting friends of mine were doing some film work. And I've always been a film buff. My parents were, were huge into the entertainment industry. They weren't in it, but they loved um, movies and, and things like that. It always amazes me today when I speak to a millennial or whatever they're called now that I'll, I'll be like, hey, did you see that movie with Barbara Streisand? I'm just picking a name out. They'd be like, who the hell is that? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm old. Sorry. You know, you never saw Nuts, that movie? No. Um, or um, Prince of Tides. But, you know, so it was that type of thing. Um, and then when I got sober, like I said, I wanted to write a screenplay. And I just took the action. I showed up at the Boston Film Society. I ended up meeting people. I wrote a script. I ended up, I mean, it really is about showing up as 90% of everything, if not more. Like my sponsor says, you know, um, doing the work is 25%, 75% is God. Mm. Meaning that you have to, if you stay in the action, then you're not going to lose your mind when you don't get what you want. Because... Mm might get something better than what you want. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that first script, Nightclub, um, was the first one I wrote. And like I said, producer after producer have optioned it over the years. It hasn't gotten made yet. But um, so, I mean, I got a chance to meet people like, you know, at the Boston Film Society it was just being of service, just showing up. I met like uh, Ernest Thompson, who wrote on Golden Pond, you know, and uh, and he was very easy to talk to because I was at these events. And being here in L.A., you know, I picked up a manager who said, Bill, you have to be in L.A. Now, now you don't. But back then it made sense. And it, I'd still say you do or, or New York or Atlanta um, because you're going to meet people. You can meet right. people going to the supermarket, you know. So I wrote that script. We picked up a manager. It was actually with um, Ace. I don't know what the hell were they called? I think it was. Um, I can't remember the name of the management, but it was owned by Mike Ovitz, who was a big mogul at the time here in Hollywood. And I learned a lot. And the other thing I did, and this is key for anyone who wants to write, I became a reader and I got paid to read scripts. And I worked for a nonprofit film company. So they only paid me like, I think I, you know, I read like over 150 scripts and they pay me like, you know, 40 bucks a script, but you're doing enough of them, you know, you're making a little bit of dough. And right. um, it really taught me what's a good script and what's a bad script. Mm -hmm. And I also took a, um, a film class. If, if you don't know who Robert McKee is, you want to look up Robert McKee. He, um, he wrote a book called Story, and he does these seminars all over the world. I think he's still doing them. He's pretty old now. But I took a, a three-day seminar at Harvard. Um, I, didn't, I wasn't going to Harvard. I wasn't that smart. But I went and took the seminar, and it started at like 9 in the morning, went till 10 at night. You had two 20-minute breaks. So it was like taking a full semester, mm -hmm. and he was, it was brutal. He was absolutely ruthless. I have to share this one part. He would say to everybody, listen, this is about writing. Don't anyone ask me how to get an agent or a manager. Please don't ask me. That drives me crazy. Are there any questions? First question. was, Hey, how do I get an agent? He was furious. He lost his mind. Second person, same thing. We, and the rest of us were like, are you, are you people deaf? What's going on? It was so idiotic. But Robert McKee's book, Story, and I'm a big Sid Field fan. I know it's an old screenwriting book, but it's called Screenplay by Sid Field. And I still pull it out when I write a new screenplay. You know, so that's how I kind of got into it. It just kind of progressed. I've always, you know, it was like I always wanted to. And I didn't move to L.A. until I was 40. I'm 62 now, you know, and I'm not wow. I'm not making money like Spielberg. You know, you're kidding me now. The potential is there. But, you know, COVID changed everything for me. Now, I used to recruit and write both equal. Now I just write and I have to have faith. And I know a lot of people and I've sold a couple things to Lifetime. They made one in 2018, 2019. Worst title ever. Horrible film. Uh, it's called. It was. I shouldn't say horrible film. It was originally called. Um, you can never go home again. And I'm like, oh, okay. They kept telling me A and E loves the title. Loves the title. I got the shooting script. It's called Stalked by My Ex. 
and I guess they have a stock by my they have a stock by series of films. So, but it's done really well. So, I've I've seen quite a few. Um, I'm a, I'm actually a, an avid Lifetime watcher and Element and Oxygen watcher, man. So, I, so check out yeah. Stock by My Ex. That's my film. Okay, I will. <laughs> okay, man. So, you've also now written several books, but you just really recently released a book. So, yeah. if you can, tell us a little bit about your book, and let's uh, introduce your book, man. Sure. It's called, um, all right, when I was growing up um, in my neighborhood that I already told you guys about, I would try and talk these guys out of doing things. It was like, you really don't want to mug that old lady. You know, you really don't want to break into that guy's house. Are you kidding me? He's a cop. What are you going to break into his house for? He's got guns. Don't do that. And one guy said to me, you're such an Uncle Bill. Shut up, Uncle Bill. So that became my nickname um, for a while. And then I got into college and this woman said to me, hey, Uncle Bill, you want to get high? I'm like, who told you that's my corporate America? Somebody called me that. Now one of my neighbors calls me that. Now most of my friends don't put so this friend of mine said, Bill, you know, you have the craziest stories about animals that you've experienced from dogs and cats to hawks and coyotes and everything else that have come into my life. And she was like, why don't you write a book? And I just thought, yeah, you know what? I'm going to write a book. So it's called Uncle Bill's Animal Tales, Life Lessons for Adults. So I took it because I really thought about how much they have impacted my life. When I've gone through hard times in my life, my dogs were always there, always there for me. Um, when I got clean and just before I got clean and sober, I had a cat for 20 years. And it was funny. I realized most of my friends at the time all had cats because we were all doing drugs. So you could you could leave them for a day or two and they'd be fine as long as they had food and water with a dog. You can't do that. Um, and uh, so it was like story after story. And I really... I wrote it because I wanted people to, to stop and remember that we don't own this planet. We share this planet mm -hmm. with all the animals, with the trees, with the ocean. And I think if we stop and remember that, that maybe we'll treat it better and treat each other better. So that's really what it was about. I wanted it to look like a children's book. Um, just for us all to kind of remember what it was like of when we first embraced the animals in our lives. Right. You know, um, I've already been getting emails from people who I don't know saying, Bill, I just had to put my dog down. Thank you so much for writing the book. It really helped. And it's humorous and heartfelt. So the stories are funny um, and some of them will might make you cry, but they're all true stories, and also a lot of tips, a lot of stuff on a lot of people don't know about certain ways to make it affordable to have a dog because they can be expensive. So I added a lot of ways to be able to, to help um, with, the, with the cost of, of having a dog or a cat. And now it's on. Always, I'm sorry, go ahead. I've always been a, uh, an animal. I, uh, I had a uh, service dog too as well. And I know that, um, you know, a lot of people get service animals just because of uh, some uh, PTSD issues or some personal issues and things like that. So knowing that you're just sharing that there's many different ways of um, getting uh, animals to provide a uh, service or benefit to you aid 
Can you talk a little bit more about that um, in regards to like how people could do that? How people can do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I understand the question. Um, it, it, are you talking about the best ways to have um, to find service animals? Well, just the animals that could help people that may be going through some things or dealing with some oh, issues. Oh, got it. Oh, okay. Like right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, and, and I can only, I can only, I mean, there's some organizations out there that are doing incredible work um, with animals and veterans, actually. I, I, I had a YouTube channel for a while called Spotlight the Good. And we would go around and and interview people who were either working, you know, running shelters where they were helping dogs. And and there was one that was called Pause for Purple Hearts. Mm. And they're still running. Right. Pause for Purple Hearts is veterans train the dogs in order to then give the dogs to another veteran. Okay. So it's vets helping vets. I think they're based out of Virginia. And it's mm -hmm. called Pause for Purple Hearts. Mm -hmm. um, I met the president. He came out. He was an incredible guy. And um, so that's one way is to find those type of organizations. And sometimes those organizations, there'll be a dog that maybe just hasn't been the best student, but could be a great dog to take in. You know, I'm real big on adopt, don't shop. Um, and And I think it's, I know with my dogs, I really do feel like they chose me. So it's if you're going to go to a go to a shelter to adopt your dog or a foster or um, a um, a rescue, you know, it's do your research more than anything because every dog has a different temperament. I've had some people I know. I just want to, you know, oh my god, I just want to put them in a shelter because they they'll end up getting a dog that needs a lot of running or a dog that needs a lot. It's like even pit bulls, pit bulls need a lot of human interaction, right? That's one thing. They're very independent, but they need a lot of interaction. So it's getting to know who they are. It's like, if you're going to, if you're going to pick a roommate, you know, you want to make sure that you're going to room with somebody who you get along with. And it's right, right. same way with dogs. You know, um, and each breed has its own temperament. So, you know, just before someone grabs a dog and the other thing, friends of mine that work, that work, that do volunteer work at the shelters, they tell everybody, if you're going to adopt this dog, you're making a 15 year commitment, might be less, but you need to get it into your head that that's what you're going to do. My dog now is 15 and I got her as a puppy, but, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't. If I had to move, I'd find a place where I can bring my dog. Right, just, right. Just the way it is. So for someone that's looking to get into the film industry, can you share what was the process like for you in regards to getting, selling that film, selling that script to Lifetime, and what challenges did you face um, going through that process? You know, at the end of the day, it, it's an old adage, and it's so true. I was praying it wasn't true. It's about who you know. It's about who you know. You know. It's, about, it's about building relationships. And okay. you can do it in a lot of different ways. Um, longevity is part of it. I remember Jay Leno said for comics, it takes 15 years to make it in L.A. 
um, it's a long haul. It doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes if it does, you might not see it again. So those are very rare. The, um, the Lifetime movie was, it was because I knew a director. I knew this woman. I had worked with her in, in, um, in finance when I was in Boston. She left around the same time I did. I left to get sober and she left to make a short film. She just decided I'm going to do this. She hadn't graduated high school. She managed to get this huge job with one of the biggest investment firms in, in Boston. The lady was amazing. And I think a big part of it is you got to have some grit and you have to be okay with, with rejection. And the number one thing in writing, there's no such thing as writing. There's only rewriting. So if you get that into your head that it's about rewriting, it's about taking notes. If someone, if you're going to give it out to people to read, I always give people a list of four to, four to um, seven questions that they can't answer yes or no to. And, and no matter what the feedback is, I don't fight with them. I don't say, yeah, but I meant this or that. No, just take the notes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And you just keep, you know, you just keep looking at whether or not you're hearing the same thing from a bunch of different people. Sorry, my 15-year-old dog needed to go out. So, um, you know, it's that type of thing. But it, it is about meeting people. Volunteering is another way to do it. Like I mentioned, if you're, if you're living in a certain city and you want to get your film made, find the film society in your area. All right. Volunteer at film festivals. Um, you could you could um, look for a reader job if you're in any of the markets like L.A., New York, Atlanta, Chicago. Um, it's reaching out. I mean, back in the day, I remember I sent a script. It's a little different now, but actually now you even have more access because you can find people anywhere. You can't be afraid to reach out. You don't want to be annoying. And, you know, you, it's got to be short and sweet and ask people for advice and for help. That's really what worked. Because when I did this lifetime, it was my friend Monica, who was a director. I had volunteered. I, my, my writing partner and myself were script consultants on her short film. We didn't charge her a dime. Mm. So... She had done directed some Lifetime movies and then hooked me up with somebody. And we started talking. And let me tell you, it was such a pain in the ass. It was the, 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 the formula that they use, like you have to, like you couldn't write any, anyone, you know, um, drinking, having a cigarette. I mean, you know, there were no other, they just had a big list of no-no's. <laughs> that you had to do it was very formulaic. It went through tons of rewrites and it took like, I'm gonna say six to eight months just to get the script. Wow. Sold. It was wow. nuts. And they would buy the idea or the pitch. And then from there we had to do an outline. And then from there, I'm telling you guys, you know, it, like this film that I just made over COVID, it was, it shot in April of 2021. Is that right? No, or 20. What are we in now? We're in, we're in 23, 2022. Okay. Is when it was, it was shot. So it's been a year and we got it. 
maybe I'm off on the numbers, but anyway, it took about a year. This is a very short period of time. It took about a year to shoot it, edit it, and get distribution. That rarely ever happens. All right. And it hasn't it hasn't aired yet. But people would say to me, like three months after we made it, so where can I see it? It doesn't work that way. <laughs> it, can it can take a long time. So if you're gonna get involved in this industry, there's a lot of waiting around, there's a lot of rejection obstacles. The only way to overcome it is that it really is, it's just not giving up. And it can be a long haul. And it's almost like the old saying, don't quit before the miracle happens. Because it, you could quit five minutes before the miracle happens. Mm. You know? And why are you doing it? Right. Are you doing it for money, for fame? You know? It, right. I, I've had a lot of friends over the years, because I've been out here over 20 years, people that reached some pretty high fame who fell even harder mm. because they weren't grounded and they were doing it for different reasons. Be of service. Be of service as much as possible. The money will come if that's what you're doing. But, you know, it, it, it's, I'm serious. I got story after story of people. There's some, there's some celebrities that, um, I mean, we've read about them in the papers. And when you talk to people that know them, they were so caught up in the results, not in the action, that they lost sight of everything else. Wow. So, I mean, it, it's, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 that's really it. I mean, it, if you're writing, it, it really depends on what you're writing, too. I mean, if you're right, if, if you want to get into production, find a PA job. And and that's really key or volunteer even on a film set. You could say to people, listen, um, I just want to get in here any way I can. I'll volunteer. I'll be a volunteer as a PA on your film. You know, student films is another way if you're acting. Um, if you're going to write, it really is um, connecting with as many people as possible. Maybe do a staged reading of your of your um, movie um, after you've already gotten notes and done many rewrites. Um, it and then enter it in the film festivals because a lot of them now have screenwriting contests, and you can go that route. I didn't go that route. Um, I really it was about people I met, like that producer was brought to me through an actor friend of mine. So it's just about, you know, as, as my friend, as my friend Liz said, when she moved out here, um, Bill, just make friends. That was it. It was so simple. It was like, Bill, just make friends. If anything, if you might have a friend <laughs> and you might have a friend who has connections, but just make friends with people. And that's what works make being friends. here in LA. I feel, you know, through my church, my, my spiritual center, not my church, my spiritual center, Mark Harris, who's passed away, he produced Crash and Gods and Monsters. And I wanted to meet him and I volunteered. And the next thing you know is I became the head of development for his film and TV company that was supporting the Agape International Spiritual Center here in LA. And mm -hmm. we didn't get any films done. We tried to, I had to read. I probably read another hundred scripts and Mark's, Mark had produced some big films. So just the information that he gave me, the time I got to meet people 
You know, we went out and pitched projects around L.A. It just it was all of that. And then I, I got my agent that way. So it's just get involved as much as possible in the business that you want to be a part of. How do you feel seeing your movie Paradise of Sinners and Saints in L.A.? How did that make you feel to see something that you created like come to fruition? Well, it's funny. I saw it. Um, we did a screening at the Charlie Chaplin Theater, which I thought was really cool, right? Because it's where United Artists was originally, that him and um, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Mary Pickford started way back during the silent movie days. And it was on the Raleigh Studios lot that Netflix just bought. So we were one of the last films that they saw there. Um, it's hard to see your work on, on the screen. It got a great response. But it's like I know a lot of actors that won't go to their screenings. They won't watch their movies because their ego or they just they're they're um, feeling like, oh, I could have done this better. Like even Woody Allen said if he could, he'd go back and re-edit his first film. So I think as an artist, you have to know when to stop. And I can't control. It's very subjective. Comedy is very subjective. And this show had been up enough times where we got really great reviews like I'd get like 10 A plus reviews and the 11th review would be a B minus. What do you think I'd focus on? The B minus, you know, it was crazy. So seeing it on the big screen, um, it felt, it felt good, but you know, like Norman Lear, they asked Norman Lear who turned a hundred and something this year, how did you handle things? And he would always say over next. So I kind of felt that way. It was like, all right, it's over. What's next? Um, I mean, I hope the audiences that see it love it. I hope it gets sold to a place where everybody can see it. Um, we had somebody there from a pretty big streaming company that was an executive who loved it. Um, they took the artwork and the trailer to Cannes. Um, I, I, it's the producer said to me, Bill, it's now going to be a waiting game, and that's what's going to drive you nuts. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and they're right, because okay. they have this, you know, because it could take a long time, it could get sold right away. It's, it's literally, it's the roll of a dice, and you have to understand there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to getting it. Like, I raised a lot of capital for this, I had no experience raising capital. I took my recruiting skills and put it into that area. And I got money from people. I had no idea they were going to pay me money. I had a friend call me and say, Bill, are you taking any more investors for your film? Hell yeah. You know, and uh, then this, this Hollywood company gave us some money too. And you can make things for under a million dollars and make a really good product, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, it's about learning. It's about being willing to have an open mind of how things work, take the action and, and move on to the next thing, you know, but seeing it was, it was fun. And I had seen the show hundreds of times because it had been, it's based on a stage production. The biggest miracle was nobody got COVID and and we had to hire COVID compliance officers that cost us an arm and a leg. And then two weeks after, the guy who laid down all the music at the studio in Venice Beach 
him and his family got COVID. My lead actor got COVID. Two other people on the on the production crew got COVID. But nobody did during the making of it. So it's a totally blessed, man. It's gonna be. It's probably gonna be R-rated. I think twenty-one original songs. And funny. Wow. Some very very funny songs. Yeah, and also some beautiful. And if we do get distribution, um, um, outside of the distribution that we have now, there is a song in it called "Miss You" that could get nominated. It's that good. And Mary Sarah sings it, and her voice is just beautiful. What an incredible artist she is. Mm-hmm. So. I just got chills saying that again. So, I have a friend. Um, I, um, I when I was writing my book, um, I went to uh, Austin, Texas, to learn how to write um, and tell your story through uh, storytelling and writing a book. And he became my mentor. Um, he worked on um, Law and Order, some Netflix shows, some some movies and things like that. And He's been telling me to like write my book, write my story, and I've been telling him that like you know I really want to turn this book into um, a film. And I was asking him like, what does it take you need to do in regards to like even get get your book into um, the film industry? And he was telling me that you know it what he does. He's a writer, so he was telling that like it's a grind, and your the stories you're telling me it's it's a grind and what you came down to tell me also like who you know and you have to tell the right story and get in front of the right person but you never stop just keep on going keep on going something you said that i've never heard anyone say before and you said rewrite yes can you talk yes. a little bit about rewrite what does that mean when no, someone bet. tell me a little about that <laughs> There's no such thing as writing. There's only rewriting. And what that means is, um, especially with a screenplay or, or a play, oh, especially a play, oh, my God, everybody's got a note. Everybody's got a note. And when you get dealing with a Netflix or somebody else, then you get executive notes, which is just crazy. Okay. So when this – this will be a good example. Um, when this when – this, play did really well here in LA my producers at the time got all these Broadway people involved and they wanted to take it to New York to open on Broadway is 5 million I'm not going to raise 5 million anytime soon Um, it made no sense whatever so we did a 10 day workshop at the Broad Theater here in LA big theater nice place they loved the show they saw it they wanted to take it from this one theater and take it there so they brought in all these Tony Award winners and it was rewriting from day one. They mm-hmm. were like, you know, you got to get rid of this. You got to change it this way. And at the end, we did this big reading with, I mean, like a lot of, you know, like Felicia Rashad's stage manager. I mean, it was wow. a lot of people. Yeah. And a lot of Tony winners from The Lion King, you name it. And um, it's a bluegrass musical, right? We were not allowed to use a fiddle or a banjo. They used a piano. What the, you know, it's like, what the hell? And this guy had gotten us to rewrite it to the point where it became a Broadway show. This was not a Broadway play. Mm-hmm. So at the end, my producers, myself and everyone else decided, no, this is not good. It didn't work. 
but we got five new songs out of it. So we took that and we ran. The rewriting process for 10 days, by the end, I never wanted to write again. I said to my husband, <laughs> I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. And, and, and what I learned from that, and this is the funny thing, because the guy, and I'm not going to name him, but the guy who was this one of the bigger Tony winners said to my producers, what's up with Bill and Tom? And they were like, what? And they go, they're really easy to work with. And he was, they were like, because they're easy to work with. What are you talking about? And he's like, writers always push back on me. Always. And I kept hearing horror stories where um, different writers I knew their shows didn't go up. Films were canceled. Rewrite, I mean, other writers were brought in because the writer wasn't willing to collaborate. Mm -hmm. so rewriting is a big part of the process, but you have to decide what hill are you willing to die on? Right. That's really what it comes down to is like, what are you going to clamp on to? And I wish we had done that with the Broadway people. I think we did to a certain extent, but it, I just more and more, it's like, all right, how do I collaborate and keep the authenticity and the truth of what I want to tell? And at the same time, be able to work with these people in order to get it produced. So you have to get into the mindset of, even though you've written this draft and you've spent all your time on it, it's going to be rewritten. That film Nightclub, Easily 20 rewrites, if not more than that. Whoa. Probably. Yeah. The film. Um, oh, God, that Lifetime film. I'm going to say 25 rewrites. Yeah. And the book. I didn't get a lot. I got some notes on it. Um, but I myself went back through it probably 10 times. You know? So it's because you have to allow it to breathe. You have to allow it to continue, you know, to grow. There's no such thing as writer's block. It's a gestation period. If you just acknowledge, okay, ideas are churning up, you know, and that's where I'm at right now. I'm going to let it come out. So if you go the Hollywood route or, or Broadway, get ready because you better rewrite or you're not going to get any, anything produced because they will can you. You know, and you have to get into that mindset. So it's like, okay. And I actually like it now. I like editing. So we'll get a script. And I mean, this Broadway thing, they were like, all right, you need to lose these four pages. You need to get rid of seven pages in the second act. And you need to, what? You know, are you crazy? And that's what we had to do. It makes it tighter. It makes it stronger. Like, and here's the good example. The second film that we're, not the second film, the next film that we're going to make uh, right now is called The Roses. And this director who we worked with on Paradise, his name is Justin Ward, great director. He read the script and he gave us, oh my God, the biggest email I've ever seen asking questions about all the characters. Tomorrow, I go into a big rewrite on this and I'm going to be, changing a ton of that script which is only going to make it better so you have to trust who you got your notes from and whether or not the questions that they ask you make sense so at the end of the day it's real simple again follow your gut not your head so i've learned a good bit about the uh movie industry a good bit of coming career 
and some of the hurdles and things that you faced. Can you talk a little bit now about how do you maintain your your work balance, your self-care in regards to taking care of like your mental health, your personal health, your physical health and things like that? Someone that's um, in such a hectic industry as we speak now. Well, it's not that hectic for me right now. It really isn't. I'm kind of on my own time right now. When it is hectic, first off, I need to drop like 40 pounds. So that's not, you know, right off the bat. Um, it, it, it comes from my sobriety. I meditate every morning. Mm-hmm. I pray. I pray a lot. I read books that are going to feed me in a certain way. Um, that I think is key. It, like right now I'm reading... Uh, Wayne Dyer's book on taking up, taking me through the Tao, you know, the, the Tao Te Ching. Um, I'm also reading a book by a guy who was part of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous called Dr. Paul. And the book is called You Can't Make Me Angry. What a great book. Let me tell you, <laughs> that was really good. One. So it's things like that. Um, I try to, and it's been harder lately because my dog is older and has really bad anxiety. Going for a lot of walks or runs was key for me to stay, keep my mind going okay. Um, I like to work. That's the other thing. I really do. I like to work. I like to create. I'm not married. I don't have any kids right now. You know, I mean, I I should say I'm not married right now. I don't have any kids. But, um, you know, I'm not really dating or anything right now. Well, I am a little bit. But it's more about... I'm at that point in my life where I just want to keep creating and, um, and I spend time with friends. I make a point of it. I try to remember, um, I try to do social things three to four times a week, Mm -hmm. literally put it on my calendar, reach out to someone, Hey, you want to have dinner or let's go to the, like last night I went to the theater. A friend of mine asked me to go and see, um, um, transparent, the musical, it was, you know, it was good just to go and, you know, and it's a pain in the ass to get downtown in L.A., but I did it. I had a lot of fun, met the cast. You know, it was good. Um, it's those type of things. I have to just kind of be awake. If I was drinking and drugging, it'd be easy. I'd be at a bar, you know, or be smoking a joint sitting on the beach. All right. Um it doesn't, you know, it just, I've already been there, done that. I don't need to do that anymore. I think if we keep evolving and understanding that we're evolving, um, but I do like to work. Like I'd like to be busier right now, to be honest with you. And I think that's coming because when we were doing the film, um, I mean, I was, you know, I was literally the, the production manager as well as the writer, as well as everything else. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being busy because you know what it is when you're doing this type of work, it, it does become a family. It's like, that's, that's probably the main reason I like doing it all. You make a new family. Are you spending so many time, so much time with them? Yeah. You know, I was having that conversation with them when I was working in corporate America, you know, you spend more time at work than you spend with your family. man. So you better like them. You know, Mark Harris, 
Mark Harris so, said to me, I'm telling you, Mark Harris said to me, you, Bill, you better make sure the people that you're going to do the film with you like, because you're going to be in bed with them for about two to three years. Wow. And, and, and Brad Wilson, who produced this film, um, he said to me at the end, and he's done 44 feature films, something around that. He's done a ton of them. And a lot of TV programs and stuff. And he said, Bill, I got to tell you, I haven't had so much fun than working on this with you guys. He goes, normally at the end of this process, nobody's talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and we've all become friends. So I had a barbecue. Yeah, I had a, I had a barbecue over Memorial Day. Three of my actors were here. So, you know, it's kind of funny. But it makes That's sense because right. it's intense when we're shooting. We shot that we shot that film in six days. You want to talk about intense. So how do you deal with um, self-doubt, fear, or failure? And what steps do you do you uh, implement in your life or in your business to overcome some of these uh, barriers? I have a good spiritual posse. I have people in my life who I can call and say, hey, I'm feeling this way, I'm feeling that way. And and they will tell me, Bill, you know that that's just not the truth. The Bill, you know, why aren't you making a gratitude list of all the things that you've been grateful for in your life right now and what you're doing? I mean, Bill, why don't you take a look at it this way? I think having people in our lives who we who uplift us and don't downgrade what we're doing, if there's anyone who is negative around me, I, I really, I have, I put up a boundary. Um, I can still be friends. I just can't talk to them very much. You know? I mean, Positivity, I, yeah. Cause I have some really negative friends too. And I have to just, I, I call them on their shit all the time though. I have no problem saying that. It's like, God, you're really negative, mm. you know? And I can fall into that at times and, but I catch myself and, and I think regarding self doubt, what's the point? doesn't accomplish anything, doesn't help me move forward. Um, I'm going to address it this way. The power of thought, everything in our life starts with thought. Happiness is a choice. And I know people will be like, oh, that's such awful. No, it's so true. It just is. I, can, I am 110% responsible for my own happiness and my own misery. That's it. It really is that simple, I think, you know, um, and I know people are like, well, you know, it's going to be more than that. No, it's not. It's just I not. agree with you. Yeah. Everything starts with thought. Because think about it. It's one thing running through our head all the whole time. So the key is what what do we attach or what thoughts do we attach to? Because thoughts are going to keep coming. We just got to right. let them go through and realize wait a minute. No, if it's not talking about self-love and it's not about the betterment of me, then I'm just going to let the thought go through. Just let it go through. I don't have to put anything to it. And it's a practice. So I got a couple more questions before we're out of here, Bill. Okay. I have a, this question here. So for someone that's looking to get into the film industry, talk to them about, um, what is your approach, your creative process when it comes to writing a script or a stage show or something like that? What does it look like for you when you're getting ready to come up with your genius to put something on paper that you want to see on stage or on film? 
Um, I do a couple things. Uh, like I said, I'm old school. So I read Sid Field's screenplay. Doesn't always apply to when I'm writing a play. Um, first off, I recommend getting Final Draft. You got to have Final Draft. It's the best software, I think. For There, there are others, but that one, I, I find it very user-friendly. And I've written plays and screenplays and for television on that. I used to write for a kid's show on PBS years ago. I wrote for a talking crayon. Um, so bizarre. But um, th th then what I do is I tend to write it as a short story. I start by writing out a short story. And then what I'll do is I'll write bios on all the characters. You know, who are they? What do they really want? You know, what are their pet peeves? Um, who else in the story do they like and who do they dislike and why? So it's it really is asking key questions. And then you start kind of getting a better feel for the characters and the storyline. I do try to look at, um, you know, a beginning, a middle and an end. Like what's gonna be the wrap up on this? You know, like, where does this go? What am I trying to say? Is it just the slice of life? It could be. Like there was a movie, Harry and Tonto, with Art Carney from years ago. It's a slice of life. It's him and his cat traveling to his daughters. You know, it's just certain things that happen. If you're writing, um, you know, when you're writing a play, it's more dialogue driven than a film. So with a film, you want to make sure that you're showing, not telling. And with a play, you're telling and showing. So there is a difference in it. Television's a whole other angle. But it's understanding the craft. That's key. So read, pick up some books, take some classes, go online. There's so many ways to do it. Read screenplays, read plays as much as possible. Absorb, absorb. Um, so that's what I kind of do. I, I start with a short story. And then if it's a screenplay, I'll do an outline. And then I do what's called a beat sheet. And the beat sheet is... This happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And you just keep going down. You can number them if you want. You don't have to. But you're mapping out the action of what happens. And that's called the beat sheet. So then when I sit down to write the screenplay, I use the beat sheet as the model. And what I do sometimes, and I like doing this, I'll write the entire screenplay with no dialogue. Just action, scenes, the whole thing. And then I'll go back and write the dialogue with the characters. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I have the whole thing mapped out. I can move scenes around. You know, why? What is? does this scene drive the story? It doesn't drive the story. Get rid of it. Like, I went to this musical last night. And it's an important musical because it's about the trans community and they're getting abused all over the place. I mean, you're in Florida, you know, it's a horrible place for people that are um, LGBTQ. Um, and it was, you know, the, the music was fun. And the, some of the, I thought the characters were good. There were some Broadway performers, very good. It was three hours long. I would cut, I would cut at least 30 minutes off this play, off this mm. musical. It just, I mean, I yawned big time and it, I felt like it was redundant. It was the same thing, but it opened in LA and this is what plays will do. They will open outside of Broadway and then they'll rewrite. Boston used to be the home for, for, um, for a lot of plays before they went to New York. Mm 
and they would go in there and try them out and then they would cut the hell out of them and then and then create something better for new york because new york critics would kill it you know the la times ripped this musical apart and it's sad i met a lot of the cast they were really it was a tough performance i mean they were really good they were really good it was just too long and think about our readers and our viewers and our listeners their attention spans a little different today than it used to be so you know i mean i'm even going too long but anyway so hope that helps no that that was perfect thank you man so this has been a great interview for me because i'm a big 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 uh, movie person um, so when i came here to america i got hooked on uh, Michael uh, Dudikoff from American Ninja, Rambo, um, some John Claude Van Damme, some Meraki, um, the um, the robot that was talking to himself, the A Team, MacGyver. So I grew up watching all of the TV shows, and now new school stuff. I'm I'm a, I'm a big uh, Jason Statham, um, all of his movies, and um, uh, Neil Nielsen, um, the guy that does um, all of the Liam, Liam Nielsen. Liam Nielsen's, yeah, I like, I like a good of his movie. Yes. So, what what I wanted to talk to you about, I, I'm saying that as I've seen a lot of things transition. So, COVID did a lot of things to the movie theaters. So, can you talk about what? Where do you see the future of like movies and screens going? in regards to like from the movie theaters to netflix to now uh, youtube you have uh, amazon we have all of these different outlets where where it's now competing with uh, cable so where do you see um screen screenplays movies um is going towards the future well and of course this is just my opinion i'm no expert on what what's going to happen next um mm -hmm. I, I can tell you we're, there's a lot of strikes going on right now. You know, the, the Writers Guild is on strike and it's probably going to be on strike for a while. Um, AI is becoming a real problem for writers, especially. Wow. So the, um, the Writers Guild is holding out for certain AI regulations to happen. Even Bill Gates and Elon Musk, who are creating AI, believe that there needs to be more regulations. People are scared of it. Um, as far as the industry goes. And I know SAG is worried about it as well. So that's going to be one obstacle to overcome. I've been hearing a lot of, um, a lot of interviews on this. I've listened to, I listened to a lot of NPR and, and a lot of, and they always have a, a people in the film industry on it. And they were talking about it. The theaters need to offer more things to get people in the door. And I think they're getting better at it now since COVID I have been to a movie theater only a couple times, but my preference because I just, it drives me nuts if people are on their cell phones at the theater. It just, I can't handle it anymore. I'm too old. Mm -hmm. um, I'm literally here in LA. I've seen people get on full phone calls and I turned around to say something and I was not going to intimidate this gentleman and his posse. So uh, <laughs> it ended very badly. And then I saw a bunch of people go after a woman who answered her phone. She was like, oh, hello. 
and the whole theater booed her. And she immediately got off the phone. I think that has to be one thing is that the theaters need to be a good place to go that you know that you can go there and enjoy the film and and not have people drunk or on their cell phones. I mean, seriously, I, I experienced people drunk at the movies, yelling, dropping, you know, the F-bomb left and right when this kid's in the theater. Not appropriate. Right. So I think that's going to be part of it. I really do. Um, and then the streaming services, and this is what a lot of the Writers Guild is, um, they want to they want to see more residuals from it. I think everyone's still trying to figure it out. But if you've noticed the films lately, it says exclusively at theaters. And that will be so you have the big screen experience. And then from there, you know, then they sell to the others. It I don't think anybody knows, to be honest with you, what's going to happen. Um, COVID did change everything. It changed people's mentality around things. It, right. Uh, I mean, there were people wearing masks at the theater last night, you know, and then my, I have a, one of my best friends lives in Fort Lauderdale and he's like, Bill, nobody wears a mask here. No one's worn a mask here in a couple of years, you know? <laughs> um, and I'm like, okay, um, whatever. But, and, and what bothers me, I mean, here's what I hope happens. I hope that there's a little bit for everybody. You know, the baby boomers, which I'm not quite there. I'm on the cusp of being a baby boomer. We're used to seeing things on television and we want to see it in the comfort of our home. And then young people want to go and experience the big screen as well as us. And then there's other people just watching things on their phone. You know, I don't think that took off as much. But I mean, I'll talk to some young some young people, like I mentioned earlier, that they just watch like YouTube videos and other videos and things and short stories and things that are, and, and does that tell us that one's attention span is shot? Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've got a friend who's not going to read my book because it's not on audio book yet. I'm like, okay, what? Can't you sit down and read a book? What the <laughs> and I know we can read. So that's the other issue, but it's, it, I think you're going to find that there's going to be something for everybody. The big question is going to be, what are the revenue streams? It all comes down to the almighty buck. If they're not making money off the phone, that's going to go away. TikTok's right. going to go away. Pretty soon, TikTok's going to go away. Um, you know, it's it really is. It's the old saying, follow the money and you'll know what's going to happen. Right. So you mentioned this and I've seen someone use artificial intelligence to make a, a song to sound like a person and the AI rep created a song and it sounded like that person that was singing that song. And then I seen someone else take artificial intelligence to write a book. I've seen someone take artificial intelligence to write a movie. So I don't know when they created it. Did they know the monster that they were creating? So in your industry and in your space, knowing that this is a craft that you've been busting your butt doing for years, and all of a sudden this technology is here and it could 
reproduce, rewrite something that you spend weeks, days, months, and does it in seconds. What is the industry? What are your thoughts in regards to the space? And then what are some things that you think should be done in regards to protect um, what you guys are doing? Well, it's like I mentioned, the Writers Guild is going to hold strong on this. And I think the, DG, the DGA just did, the Directors Guild, and I know the Producers Guild did. And I think SAG is now dealing with it because they're worried about actors being replaced. Um, I, think you, I think it's going to backfire on them. I really do. I just read an article. I mean, there's been AI giving out medical information to cancer patients that was incorrect. That's not good. So what they're claiming with the writing is they think that it will help in regards to getting it out there, but that the writer will maintain, um, you know, how it's formula. I mean, like the actual storyline and everything else. I think you're going to find people just like they say exclusively at the theater. Mm -hmm. It's going to say not done through AI. Mm. Because think about it as human beings. I don't want to see anything made by AI. I could care less. I want I want to see what that human being had to say. So I know everyone's worried about technology, and I am too to a certain extent. But I also think at the end of the day, I mean, I I grew up through not grew up, but I mean, I was around during the Y two K thing. Remember, everyone's like, "Oh, come you know, come two thousand, everyone's phones aren't going to work, and they're going to set off you know nuclear warheads." I just think human beings are nuts. Right. So I think with AI, I mean, look at look at crypto. Crypto, oh, crypto, crypto. They all went bankrupt. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I have no desire. I had a friend of mine in the industry was like, Bill, you know, you should be reaching out to crypto people and this and this, which I did because they have money. And I was trying to raise capital for the film. But he was trying to get me to buy into it. I'm like, no, thanks. <laughs> And he lost his shirt, you know. So I think with AI, I'm praying that it's being used in the proper way. But I'm noticing even on answering services through like, you know, different banks or um, whoever I'm calling, it will drive me away from that that company. I won't I'm going to take my money out of certain banks because um, I can't get through to a human being. Right. And I just don't think it's going to – I think the problem is the people that are doing this are not thinking about the biggest voting block out there, which are baby boomers. Right. And I'm on the cusp, like I said. We're not tech people. you got to make it so it makes our life easier, not harder. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I think is going to be a backlash on them. I'm hoping it is, to be honest with you. I really am. I'm not a fan of AI. Um, I, I know that there's certain things it's probably good for, but and I probably need to learn more about that. But when I hear Elon Musk and Bill Gates talk to the Senate about we need regulations on something that we're creating because we're worried we're going to be creating a Frankenstein. So I think I don't know. I, I we'll see how it all plays out. But, you know, I'm, I'm near the end of my life, not near the beginning. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so as we get ready to wrap up and get out of here man um i say thank you for uh sharing your insights and um some of the things that you've been through i just uh feel like a rewarding road now man um just seeing the 
fruits of your labor. Can you can you share with our audiences some uh, key life lessons, some advice from all of the adversities that you've faced, all of uh, all of the things that you've learned throughout your uh, journey, man? You, you've accomplished so much. You've done so much. You got so many stories, man. What's, what are what are some advice or some lessons you can share with our audience? Don't take yourself so um, um, so seriously. That's that's number one. Don't take yourself so seriously. Try not to take things personally, because usually if there's a jibe or something coming at you, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with them. Um, trust in the process. Trust in the path that you're on. If you followed your gut. You got to trust. You really do. If you can't, the worst is when people don't even make an attempt because they're so afraid of failing. Failing is all part of it. You got to embrace the failure. Mm -hmm. I'm serious. It, it, it's, it's, you know, I started as a, as a headhunter in sales and, you know, I'd make 50 to a hundred calls a day and nothing happened. But because I put that energy into it, somebody would call me from out of left field and give me a job opening or, or the perfect candidate came because I took the action. So as I've mentioned throughout this whole call, live in the action, not in the results. Just keep showing up. It's all an adventure. And I will end on this of, if you look at life like, what's my purpose? What's the meaning? You're gonna drive yourself mad. If you look at it, that life is an adventure and it's a, I'm going to use the word practice because I can forget, but when I can be in that space of it's an adventure and everything's unfolding for the greater good, even though you might not see it, you might not feel it. Um, you might feel like it's never going to happen. I do believe that something that feels good comes out of everything that feels bad, you know, that there's which at the end of the day is the old saying, you know, love is everything. And I really believe that it is. It's just that we got to get there. It's like the analogy I love is, and I added one piece to it. When one, one door closes, another door opens, but sometimes it's hell in the hallway. You know? <laughs> and that's really what it comes down to. It's, just realize that you might be in the hallway for a little while and that, and then let that other door open. And I need to say this. So I remember it. I mean, I'm waiting for my film to sell, you know, the book I wanted to sell more. I I'm writing my next book, but I have to stay. I have to stay in Monday. Just live Monday. I could walk out and get hit by a bus tomorrow. Right. So I'm living in Wednesday and I get killed on Tuesday. Monday was a complete waste of time. I think Hell in the Hallway should be your next book or next movie, too. Yeah. <laughs> Hell in the Hallway. That's a good one. So, Bill, if anybody wanted to um, book you on a podcast, um, wanted to work with you, wanted to purchase your book or do any other the business with you, man. Um, how can people get in contact with you, get a hold of you? Sure. And, it, you know, the book is easy. Just go to Amazon. I'm keeping it easy right now. So it's on Amazon. In regards to getting a hold of me, I have no problem giving out my email address um, because I can always block somebody if I don't like what they send. So um, it's, it's 
you know, billrob97 at yahoo.com. B-I-L-L-R-O-B-9-7 at yahoo.com. And if you need advice on something, I can always give you a quick email. You know, um, I'm not going to rewrite your script unless, you know, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, it's fine. If, if people want to reach out, I mean, like I've said before, we're all in this thing together and, um, you know, let's just be kind to each other and, and respect each other. And, you know, let's make this, our experience on the planet, you know, should be filled with more joy and happiness. And that's really all it comes down to, I think, and health. Absolutely, 100% agree. Well, Bill, man, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this interview with you, man. I've learned so much about you. I've had a great time. Um, I've laughed a good bit. So I just want to tell you, man, thank you for coming on here, sharing your story, thank being you. transparent, being vulnerable. Um, you're doing something that a lot of men probably would not even do or talk about. And most people wouldn't even talk about. And like I said, man, um, congratulations on your sobriety, man. I know it's a struggle every single day. Yeah. So, um, your strength, your resilience, and your you're great from adversity. So thank you so much for being on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Well, guys, until next time, we drop episodes week. We love you. Peace. Can't complain at all. Couple dollars in my pocket, no income and go. Been working on my body, getting healthier. Thank God for clarity.